How do you know when you're on the right path in life? Her life is often portrayed as a walk in scripture. How do you know when you're walking in the right way? For that matter, how do you know when you're thinking clearly about an issue or when you've made the right judgment about another person? Who in your life serves as a check to the way you think about life? That's the question. When we're very young, we have our parents to serve as a check to our wild thoughts and inclinations. No, running in the house with scissors is not safe. No, jumping off that large boulder is not a good idea. No, playing with that squirrel that's foaming at the mouth is is not a good idea. As we get older, we tend to lean more on our peers and friends, perhaps a significant other or a professional, maybe a doctor or a therapist. But how do you know that they know what is right? Do they know the whole issue? If it involves another person, do they know the other person's character and their perspective? Will this person who you go to for counsel actually tell you when you are wrong? Are they that kind of person? Do they love you that well? In theology, we discuss the attribute of God called omniscience. This is a word from two Latin terms. The first, omni, meaning all. The second, sire, meaning to know. In other words, we use this word to describe the fact that God knows all. He knows everything that a being with his attributes should know. And because he is perfect, he knows everything in the fullest possible way. And the reality is this includes us. If it is true that God knows all, then when we're faced with a difficult situation or decision, when we're faced with a conflict with someone, should we not turn to him first to examine our hearts? Should we not turn to him when we need our motives tested? Should we not turn to him to determine if we are judging others rightly? As we continue in our series in the Psalms this morning, this is where the rubber meets the road with Psalm 139. We love this psalm. Many have memorized the whole or various portions of this psalm to comfort their hearts in affliction with the emphasis that it has on the omniscience of God. But the real question is, how often do we practice Psalm 139. If you haven't, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read the entire psalm for us, and then we'll take a look at the message for the psalm and um, all of the various parts. Psalm 139, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O oh God. How precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of bloodshed, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I, I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Father, thank you again for your word, which is true. Your word which sanctifies us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The message of the psalm is simple. The Lord's thorough knowledge of us should bring comfort and motivate us to seek his counsel for life. There are two different sections in this psalm, verses 1 through 18 and the verses 19 through 24. Verses 1 through 18, we can take comfort in the omniscience of God. And in verses 19 through 24, because we know that he's omniscient, we should seek his counsel. We take comfort, we seek his counsel. So let's go ahead and look at that first section, verses 1 through 18. I won't read them again. But the point of this is that we can take comfort in the omniscience of God. Now, this psalm is not meant to read like a systematic theology on the issue of omniscience. It's really just David reflecting on this theological truth as it related to his life. He's thinking about who God is in relation to himself. He's acknowledging who God is in relation to himself. As his maker, God knows him thoroughly. And he's reflecting on this truth and simply stating it back to God in the form of a prayer. When we hear a sermon or a Bible lesson, we often want to know what should I do. We often want to hear a list of facts or statements and simply tell us how to behave. But the reality is that much of our sanctification starts not with a command to act, but rather a truth to believe. We know, we need to know who God is. And it is the knowledge of who God is, coupled with faith, that ultimately gives us wisdom to apply truth in everyday life. That's how sanctification works. That's what David's doing here. In verse 1, David expresses a fact of the Lord's thorough knowledge of him. Again, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This verse acts as a summary statement for the whole section. The verb that we've translated search has the intensity of a court examination. This is akin to questioning a questioning from police at the police station, an examination by a lawyer in a court proceeding. This is an invasive surgical procedure intended to find the source of an illness. You have searched me. The verb know is what we would typically expect to see. It involves an intimate, relational, personal knowledge. David says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. The Lord has already done this. There's nothing more than the Lord needs to do. He's already searched him and known him. David is stating this as a fact. He's saying, you've put me under such scrutiny. You've thoroughly examined me to the degree that you've come to know me intimately and completely. 
And then the next 17 verses, he fleshes out the idea of, 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 of what the Lord's thorough knowledge of him looks like. He says, the Lord knows him inwardly, verses 2 through 5. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. The Lord knows him inwardly. The focus here seems to be on David's innermost being. He mentions his thoughts, his ways. His words only uttered in his mind, not from the tongue. David is using tangible ideas here to express intangible concepts. For example, in verse 2, the idea of sitting down and rising up is explained by the term in the second half of the line, thoughts from afar. In other words, the Lord knows David's thoughts to the degree that someone would know when you sit down and rise up if they were physically watching you. We see in those spy movies sometimes the folks who are tasked with finding a person of interest are often portrayed sitting in a van somewhere, listening in, doing some kind of surveillance, sitting on a rooftop, looking through a spyglass. They see when the person literally sits down and rises up. David says, that's how familiar the Lord is with my thoughts. Similarly, verse three, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Certainly this could apply to a physical path and physically lying down. But again, the emphasis is on his inward being. He says, you know, the way I think again, to the same degree that someone watching me would know my path. And when I lay down my head, you know how I think about life. You know, the things that I consider, you know, the ups and downs of my thought processes. The Lord knows the highs and lows. In other words, when you're floating on cloud nine, because something wonderful has happened in life. And when you're in the deepest depths of depression, the Lord knows you. Verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Again, he's talking about the Lord's knowledge of his innermost being. He says, even before he utters a word, the Lord knows it in the deep recesses of our minds. Before the signal is sent from our brains through the synapses that ultimately give moment, movement to our jaw muscles, our tongues, our cheeks, our lips, before that split second or whatever the, the, the amount of time is elapses between our thought and the expression of our thought with our lips, the Lord knows exactly what you're going to say. He says, you know it all together. This is thorough, complete knowledge. He continues in verse five. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Again, using that tangible language to express intangible truth. The Lord is not physically laying a hand on our person, but this idea of him hemming us in behind and before is as if we are in a battle and we've been cut off by the enemy. The enemy is on one side, he's on the other side, and there's nowhere else for us to go. We're on lockdown. He says, there's no stray thought in my mind that you have not touched. Don't miss that very personal language here. Again, we're not talking about a physical hand, but the mention of the Lord laying his hand on David is instructive. It's not as if the Lord knows our thoughts from afar and is disgusted by them and stays aloof. This is the Lord being intimately acquainted with our thoughts. He is so close in spite of whatever thoughts we might be having, 
that he could literally reach out and touch us. You can imagine his hand resting on our very soul. He says, you know me inwardly. You know me certainly better than anyone else, perhaps better than myself. David says, I cannot even fathom this truth. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. I can't understand it. I can't fully fathom it. It's just too much. It's too great. It's too wonderful. I wonder how often you've considered that. Do you think about the fact that the Lord knows the inner you? The you that you would be totally embarrassed for anyone else to know? The you who you hope will never end up on the 6 o'clock news. The you whose thoughts you keep on lockdown for fear that you would be committed by your family. That you. The secret you. You know the Lord knows that you. Here's the amazing part. Though we know our blood relatives, maybe our most intimate friends would disown us for some of the secret thoughts that we've had over the course of our lives. The Lord never would. And he stays close enough to touch. And we know that this is true all as a result of his redemptive work for us in Christ. I've said already this morning, God sent Jesus into the world, not just to say a baby in a feeding trough, but so that we would know that he's interested in knowing us and being near to us and drawing us near to him. That is what the season should remind us because Jesus didn't stay a baby in a feeding trough. He became a man. He lived as a man. He suffered as a man. He was tempted as a man. He did all of that without sin. He died for us on the cross and he rose again to give us life. That's what our God has done for us. Moving on, the Lord knows us inwardly. He also sees us externally. After contemplating the fact that the Lord knows the inner man, his inner thought patterns, his highs and lows, he considers whether or not it would even make a difference where he goes in the world. Verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, this is kind of a hypothetical question, knowing what was already previously stated, that the Lord has such a thorough and intimate knowledge of us. David already knows the answer to this question. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? The answer is obviously nowhere. If the Lord knows you so thoroughly, intimately in your innermost being, there's nowhere you could hide from him. There's nowhere you could physically go that the penetrating gaze of the spirit would not find you. He uses a technique that we see in other Psalms, a merism using two opposing parts to express the whole. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In other words, it doesn't matter where I go in all of creation. The Lord is there and he sees us. He goes on in verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning 
and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Again, the directional markers here are from east to west. And again, from east to west, meaning anywhere in between. The wings of the morning are a reference to the east where the sun rises, the sea being the west of Israel. So from east to west, again, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Again, that personal language of the right hand. We mentioned the Lord's hand being upon him earlier. Here we see it again, your hand, your right hand. The right hand is always indicative of power. Your mighty right hand, your powerful outstretched arm will uphold me no matter where I go. That's his confidence. Again, don't miss this. The Lord knows us intimately. He knows us so well that there isn't a single place that we could go where he would not fix his gaze. And more than that, where his almighty hand would not reach out to uphold us. Make sure you don't miss this. God has never and will never leave you. Sometimes I see this language on some of these, you know, uh, posts on social media and memes and all this about God showing up when I needed him to. And I get it. I get the, I get the, the point of that, but it also misses the point of this and everything else that's said about the Lord because God doesn't go away from you and then come back when you need help. He doesn't like, he, he doesn't like go to, to, to the next room and hang out for a while and then when we call out for help, he, you know, he gets up out of his chair and walks into the other room to see if, what he can do to lend a hand. God is always ever present with us. He says, your right hand will uphold me. Dr. Stephen Lawson said this, the omnipresence of God means that there's no place within the universe where God is excluded or barred. No place in the entire universe. Moreover, he comments, and I think this is helpful for us to consider. He says, God is always ever present with the fullness of all that he is. I'll say that again. He said, God is always ever present with the fullness of all that he is. Meaning that when God is present with us, he's not half there. I know we've all seen this, right? Like you go out and you, or maybe at family gatherings and everyone's kind of sitting around and you're supposed to be together, right? But everybody's on their cell phones. And like you're kind of having a conversation, but you're not really having a conversation. And like every once in a while you'll hear something. So you might chime in, you might throw in a word or, you know, comment on something, but you're not really there. And they're not really there. You're both kind of like 30% there, maybe 50 or 60% there. That never applies to God. He's always ever present in the fullness of who he is at all times. He's always there with you. In all of his fullness. And that will never change, beloved. David goes on because sometimes we feel like he does fail. Sometimes we feel like he's not near. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even 
the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. And he's talking hypothetically, again, pondering if there is somewhere that he could possibly go away from the Lord. He says, doesn't matter how high or low I go, doesn't matter how far to the east or from the west, doesn't matter how bright or how dark it is around me. Sometimes we feel as if we are in a dark place. We may be literally in a dark place. Some of us simply don't like the dark. You don't have to be a child for that to apply. The point is, here, it still wouldn't matter. Whether you're actually in the dark or whether you feel like you're in the dark or physically far away from safety, the Lord is still with you. Darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. We may feel in the dark as if we are alone, as if there's no one else around. But David's point is, the dark doesn't apply to God. I think one of the most discouraging part of some trials that we endure is when we think or when we feel that we are alone, that no one sees us, no one knows us, no one is there. But the truth of this psalm is that even when we feel like we're in the dark, even if we are actually in the dark, whether it's a dark place physically or a dark place emotionally, the Lord is still there. He has not changed. He has not moved. He has not been diminished by the darkness at all. His loving hand, his loving gaze is still resting upon you. difference between a believer and an unbeliever is simply that we all go through dark times it would be disingenuous it would be um, a lie for us as believers to claim that we don't go through dark times difficult times hard times the difference between the believer and an unbeliever is that the believer in the midst of those difficult times clings to the Lord because we know, without a doubt, that the Lord is still with us. The Lord knows us inwardly. He sees us externally. He's created us wonderfully. How does the Lord have such an intimate knowledge of us? Why does he persist in gazing and upholding upon us? It's because he made us. Verses 13 and 16. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, again, I said this is not intended to be read as a systematic theology. It was also not intended to substantiate pro-life views. That's not the purpose of this passage, though it certainly does support it. The section reminds us that God made us. God formed us in the womb. Therefore, he knew us intimately prior to our birth, just as intimately he does after our birth. Again, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The creation of life within the womb is not accidental. It is not by means of the will or strength of man. It is not by means of medical precision. No matter how advanced our technology becomes, 
If the Lord doesn't will, life shall not enter the womb and life shall not leave the womb. If the Lord wills, it does. David says, Lord, I know that you made me and I praise you for that. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't only praise the Lord for forming him in the womb. He also praises the Lord for forming his days past the womb. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. In other words, even as the Lord gazed upon our unformed substance, he gazed upon the child developing in the womb. Every one of their days were written in the book of life. The Lord sees and knows our days from start, from conception to finish to death and even beyond that. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing takes him off guard. The Lord is intimately acquainted with all of our ways and intimately acquainted with all of our days and his almighty hand rests upon us through all of them. Question is, do you believe that? What is it about you, about your life that you complain about at night? What is it about you that you lament when no one else is around, when no one else is looking, when no one else hears? God is, as one author said, the author of every detail of your being, all the good and yes, all the adversity. Job said, should we not accept, should we accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? Job understood the sovereignty of God in all things. And that dear brother suffered, I would say, probably more than any of us will ever suffer in our lives. But we have to acknowledge and we have to humble ourselves before the sovereignty of God and all of that. He is the author of our lives. The question is, do you trust him in that? Paul says in Romans 9, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will the, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He's using a simple illustration of a potter and clay, and he's not the first one in Scripture to use the illustration of the potter and to apply it to God. A potter makes from clay whatever he wants, however he wants to make it. And you don't hear the clay saying, hey, why didn't you make me a cup instead of a plate? Why didn't you make me a, a serving dish instead of a, a trash can? Because the potter has the absolute right to do whatever he wills. And I see us all shaking our heads and us all agreeing with that. But do you agree with that when it comes to your life? Do you confess that you still trust and you still accept whatever the Lord has done in your life for your life do you still say yes Lord I understand and I believe and I trust you in spite of it even though right now my life might look like a dumpster on fire <laughs> I still trust you because I know you're with me and I know you love me because he's proven it I mean he sent his son into the world this world with us 
What more does he need to do to prove his love? Sometimes we sing the song, whatever my God ordains is right. Whatever my God ordains is right. I will be still in all he does and follow where he guides. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. He will not deceive me. He will not leave me. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. He holds me that I shall not fall. I wonder, do you believe that? And do you believe that even in those difficult times when your life does feel like a dumpster fire, do you believe that his grace is sufficient for you? That his right hand upon you will uphold you? Back to the text again, these truths brought David great comfort. The knowledge of God's omniscience that the Lord knows him intimately, sees him externally, made him wonderfully, and ultimately holds him eternally. Verses 17 and 18, how precious are your thoughts of me, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake and I am still with you. I mentioned this earlier, but one of the, again, one of the greatest sources of discouragement for us is the thought that no one is near. No one sees us. No one knows us. And sometimes we apply that to God in the way we think about him. And I think the reason why we tend to uh, apply that to God is because that's often true of us in the way we think about God. We know that we don't often think of him as much as we should. And we think that he does the same thing to us. We go about our day often engaged in whatever we're doing, engaged with someone else, working on some project, enjoying some recreation without a single thought of the Lord. We go through a difficult time and we assume that the Lord's thoughts are about us and are for us and we are upset because we're going through this difficult time and we think that because we're going through a difficult, difficult time, that means that the Lord's not thinking about us. And we haven't been considering him at all. The reality is that our spiritual growth and our effectiveness in Christ is in direct relation to the time and effectiveness of our thoughts of him. Paul says in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on, not on things that are on earth. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind. Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 3, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I wonder, how many are your thoughts of the Lord? We may be tempted to despair, wondering if the Lord sees us, knows us, is thinking of us, actively taking care of us in the midst of our trouble, but how many have your thoughts been of the Lord? And are there right thoughts? How much time do you actually spend in the word of God considering the person of God? Not just looking for something that will make you feel good about yourself in the moment, but trying to get to know more about this God who sent his son from heaven into this dirty, rotten, stinking world to save us. I mentioned one time, time ago, but A.W. Tozer said that the wrong, you know, we kind of scoff at the uh, people in antiquity that they made idols, but I like A.W. Tozer's point. He said that wrong thoughts about God are essentially idolatry. If you, are, if you have a concept of God that is 
in any way different from how he's revealed himself, then it is the same as idolatry. So how are your thoughts about God? Again, I read Isaiah 40. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Who are you comparing the Lord to? Are you thinking right thoughts about him? As you go about your day, as you go about hour by hour, how are your thoughts to the Lord about the Lord? You have nothing to consider this week. Consider this from Psalm 139, that the thoughts of the Lord concerning you are many. Myriads and myriads. You're always on his mind. And I don't say that in some new age sort of Jesus is my lovesick genie in a bottle way. I say that because it is true. His thoughts concerning you are many. He knows you, the real you, intimately. He created, created you in the womb. Even in the womb, he formed and fashioned the very number of your days. He knows your thoughts. He knows them before they reach your lip. There's nowhere in all of creation you could go and be hidden from him. Even the darkness is as light to him. He sees you with a perfect vision. In spite of all that, in spite of all of your imperfections and foolishness, he still lays his hand upon you and he still upholds you. Now, often when we think of Psalm 139, we think of this first section of the psalm and the greatness of the theology of the omniscience of God. We take comfort in knowing that our Lord knows us intimately, but the psalm does not stop there. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, the psalm is two sections. We take comfort in the Lord's omniscience, as we just talked about. We should also take counsel from the omniscient God. That's what the last five verses are about. Starting at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Verses 19 through 22 seem like an abrupt shift. David's been focusing on up until this point. He's been meditating again on the truth of who God is, his omniscience, praying back to the Lord with gratitude and joy in his heart. And then we dive right into what looks like a denouncing of the wicked. Lord, I thank you that you know me so well, that you know me so intimately. Now slay the wicked. And we're like, where did that come from? Now let's take a closer look at it briefly. Again, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh God, oh men of bloodshed, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. I think there's a contrast here. Lord, you know me. You know your people intimately. Your knowledge of us is inexhaustible. But you also know those who have not trusted you. Biblically, that is a standard for those who are referred to as the wicked. They do not have faith in God. They do not know God. They do not think about God rightly. And because they don't think about God rightly, they also don't think about others rightly. They are men of blood, meaning that they shed the blood of others. Inevitably, a low view of God will lead to a low view of those made in his image, a lower valuing of life. Moreover, whereas a high view of God leads to praise, a low view of God leads to words of disdain. He says, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. David says, you know that there are some who do not believe. You know 
that they do not care for you nor your people. Whereas you uphold me, I pray that you would do away with them. Pour out your righteous wrath upon them. That is the right thing for you to do. Now listen, we may not like to think this way about those who don't believe, but it is right for God to judge those who dishonor him as God in the way that he is required. It is right for God, for the omniscient creator God, to judge the wicked for their wickedness, failing to trust in him and seeking to murder his people. It is right. Now we all know people who don't know the Lord, and it is hard to think of it that way, but it is right for God to send those who do not honor him as God to judgment. That's David's point. Look what he says further. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I don't think the words here for hate and loathe are meant to envision a visceral emotional response to the wicked. Perhaps at times there was that, but it's probably better to take the idea of hatred as more of a rejection. In other words, he's saying that those who have rejected you, I have also rejected. In my heart, in my mind, and by my actions, I have rejected them. I do not want to be like them. I reject their philosophy of life. I reject their choices in life. I reject their course of life as a viable option for me. I'm committed to you alone. That's David's point. And then we reach the conclusion, and all of the psalm has been leading to this in the final couple of verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And again, we come full circle to where we started. This time it's not, Lord, you have searched me, but rather it is a request, Lord, search me and know my heart. David is confident that he's rejected the way of the wicked. The reality is that he knows he doesn't know himself as much as he thinks. And he knows that Moreover, the Lord knows him a lot better than he knows himself. He's being honest with himself and before the Lord right now. And he knows that he doesn't always think the right way about life or even about the wicked around him. We've read from some other Psalms talking about the envy of the wicked. And sometimes we're prone to envy the wicked in their wickedness. Maybe we, you know, we scoff at the wicked and we, we speak angry words about those who are wicked and we agree with David, yes, Lord, you should slay the wicked and all that. But part of the reason why we want to slay the wicked is because they're getting things that we don't. Or maybe we're just angry about the wicked and the wickedness around us because their wickedness has impacted us in some way. It's inconvenienced me. It's caused me to lose out. It's not really because we love God. We love Jesus. Regardless of why, David still asks the Lord to search him. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We've already talked about the words search and know. Same words from earlier. This is that close, intimate, intense examination of our hearts. He says, see if there be any grievous way in me. The idea for grievous is um, something that is perhaps hurtful or that leads to pain. And in context, it's more like the pain that comes as a result of sin. And so David is saying, if there's anything in me that's going to lead to sin, it's going to lead to a sinful response. 
anything at all. Notice he says anyway. And I think that's instructive too, just that one word any, because sometimes we are aware of the weight and sin that easily entangles us, right? Like we are aware of things that we trip over. But he's not just interested in the things that he can see by himself. And he's not just interested in the things that his friends can see when he talks to his friends about his life. Or he's not just interested in the things that his therapist can see that his therapist says he needs to change. He's interested in knowing what the Lord sees in him. If the Lord, the one who created him in the womb, the one who wrote out all of his days, the one who knows him inwardly, who sees him externally, who created him wonderfully, he's interested in knowing if the Lord sees anything at all in him that would lead to sin. He says, Lord, take it away. You search me because you know me best. If there's any grievous way in me, and what? Lead me in the everlasting way. That is the prayer. That's the request of Psalm 139. That's the application. This one verse, this is the application of Psalm 139. That's a natural conclusion to pondering and applying the truth that God knows us fully in every way. So many people have fallen in love with Psalm 139 because of verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And they're all like, yeah, God made me good. <laughs> or how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God, how vast is the sum of them. But how many people are quoting those last two verses? Search me, O oh God. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way how many people have committed that to memory and are praying that regularly there really is no greater benefit to the nearness of God than to utter this prayer and to know for certain listen to know for certain that he will lead you in the everlasting way because he's invested in you Again, he sent his son to die for you. And he's laid his hand upon you. So of course he'll lead you in the everlasting way. If you would ask. If you would entrust yourself to him. My father in the faith used to employ his students to walk with God. He would say, walk with God. He meant that in the same way that the saints of old, particularly in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, were designated as having walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked and talked with God. We saw Moses walking with God. They were not perfect men. They did not always respond to life perfectly, but they stayed close to God. They walked with God throughout the course of their lives. They acknowledged him in all their ways in the words of the Proverbs. They took comfort in the fact that God knew them intimately and they stayed as close to him as possible so that he might guide them in the everlasting way. And I would say that to you again this morning. Walk with God, beloved. Stay close to him. Draw near to him as often as you can. Walk with God and ask him frequently to examine your heart trusting that even in the darkest of times he'll be with you he'll never leave you and that he'll always lead you in the everlasting way father thank you for the reminder of this truth thank you for your word thank you for jesus who 
proves to us in no uncertain terms that you are with us, that you are for us, that you desire to walk with us. I pray, Father, that you would give us confidence, the confidence that David had to pray this prayer, that you would search us, that you would know our hearts, that you would try us, that you would see if there is any grievous way in us, that you would constantly lead us in the everlasting way. Father, would you do that work in our hearts this morning? And would you do that for your glory in Christ's name? Amen.